romantic. Uh, I don't typically cry at the end, at the side of a happy ending. Uh, uh, you won't see me get to the last page of, uh, of a novel and start crying. Although I have been known to tear up occasionally um, just so that my kids don't testify to the opposite. Um, nonetheless, I do find true love amazing. Actually, I find it and I don't know about you, but I find it a bit puzzling at times. But that makes it all the more amazing to me. I guess the happy ending that I crave is the one where true love overcomes all obstacles and sees through all sorrow. With that, let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your promises. Be with us today as we study your promise of our eternal and glorious lives with you. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now you may remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Dave offered us a perfect picture of the perfect marriage. It wasn't one of his own invention, wasn't a fairy tale, but came straight from the word of God in Revelation 19. Do you remember that? Pastor Silvernail showed us how God uses marriage as a metaphor to describe the Lord's love for us. His immeasurable, perfect, undeserved love on us sinners. I would like us to take another look at Revelation 19 this morning, but this time I would like us to look at our marriages. How do our marriages measure up to this metaphor? How do we in our marriages, in this church, model the perfect marriage in Revelation 19. God has given his people many rituals over the course of history to help them understand who he is and to foreshadow the act of his salvation and the coming of the kingdom. You might know some of these examples. From the Old Testament, we have circumcision, the tabernacle, the various feasts from the, New from the New Testament, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are real life pictures to help us see what the kingdom of heaven is really like. So is it possible then that earthly marriage ordained by God serves a similar function to help us understand who he is, how much he loves us, and to foreshadow our eternal union with him? I believe that one of the reasons that God wants us to have good, growing, spiritually dynamic marriages is because they witness to the very special relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. As we reread Revelation 19 this morning, read it with me and consider how earthly marriage can serve to remind us of these things. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure." For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, 
Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be married to Christ? If you believe in Jesus, if you know that he saved you through his death on the cross, then I hope you, like me, find these words to be intensely romantic. I hope you dream about the day when you will be with him forever. My daughters, they're not even 10 yet, and they dream about their wedding day. I'm sure they're the only ones. In fact, if you are a father of a daughter, I'm sure you've enjoyed hearing these words or something like them. Daddy, when I grow up, I wanna marry you. Uh, of course, they don't understand, but, uh, and we know that that won't happen, but I still love hearing those words. They're just wonderful and precious words. It also gives me a chance to explain to them that one day they will find the man they are going to marry if daddy approves. <laughs> and they are of the age of 33 <laughs> and a half. But that one day, you and I, sweetheart, will be married to Jesus. Now, I was explaining this to one of my girls, and she exclaimed, Daddy, how can you be married to Jesus? You're a man. Now, it seems unnatural to us to think actually in those terms. I mean, you know, we often think of the world as the natural world and we struggle to comprehend supernatural things. But I think our perceptions are a bit screwed up. This world is temporary. Our home is in heaven. Now don't you think that once we're in heaven and an eternity has passed and we have an eternity yet to go, we'll look back on world history, all of world history as a tiny little blip in all of eternal history. As Christians, we need to see the world differently through what I call kingdom eyes. We need to interpret this world through those eyes with an eternal perspective. In describing the supernatural act of miracles, uh, there's a theologian by the name of uh, Jorgen Moltmann, German theologian, he sees through kingdom eyes and he gives a great example when discussing the healings of Christ in the New Testament. And he puts it this way, he says, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. When you put on your kingdom eyes, you gain a different perspective seeing this world as temporary and yet looking for glimpses into eternity. So then, how does temporary earthly marriage offer us a glimpse into our eternal marriage with Christ? Let me give you three ways this morning. First, the groom accepts the bride. Note the subtle wording in Revelation 19.8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. On her wedding day, the bride wears white for what reason? to symbolize purity. 
The wording here suggests, though, that the bride, the church, does not deserve to be dressed in that way. And we know that to be true. Take a look uh, at Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts, no matter how good those righteous acts are, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. And yet, on our wedding day to Jesus, we will be clothed in pure, bright linen, Generations and generations of weddings have held that pure white gowns are for virgins, brides who have not defiled themselves or been with uh, another man. Uh, we, often, if a woman gets remarried, she doesn't wear a pure white gown. Yet we see here that Jesus accepts his bride despite her past, removing her filthy rags and clothing her in righteousness. Romans 5 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Now, if that is the way we are spiritually, you can bet we come into human marriage with a great deal of the same baggage. We are lost and defiled, unable to live up to the expectations of a perfect marriage. But let me tell you, a perfect marriage is not about perfection. That's not what I'm here to talk about. Not that kind of a perfect marriage. If it were, not a single one of us in this room today would have any chance at success. Instead, marriage offers us an opportunity to see ourselves through Christ's eyes, to love someone who is unlovable, and to be loved even though we ourselves are unlovable. Yes, on the one hand, my wife, Dawn, is unlovable. She comes with quirks and inadequacies. She's incapable of meeting my expectations. Now, of course, I have countless reasons for loving her. But if I did not accept her for who she is, I would probably despise her more days than I would love her. On the other hand, when I turn this around on myself and I look in the mirror, I can see that I am far worse. I can see that she loves me not for who I am, but in spite of who I am. I'm so blessed to know that she loves me in spite of who I am. I remember the first year of our marriage. It was 1991. I was actually, I was still in college, which means we had no money. Uh, It took us a while, but we finally found an apartment we could afford. It was a 400 square foot studio apartment in downtown Rochester. It probably would have fit in that section there of the auditorium. It had two doors. It had the front door to the apartment and it had the door to the bathroom. 
The bedroom, the kitchen, the dining room, the living room were all conveniently located in one place. Sometimes it seemed cozy and simple, but other times not so much. After all, the first year of a marriage is full of many firsts. Um, One of those is, of course, fighting. And I guess you could say we were working out our marriage with fear and trembling Uh, And a lot of yelling, I would suppose. Actually, I don't really remember a lot of yelling in our house. I do remember setting a policy, though, that every now and then, when the arguing would get too hot, we would have to get away from each other for a little while. Um, It's pretty good advice. I had received it before. And the problem is, in a studio apartment, where do you go to get away? To the bedroom? I don't think so. So what would happen? I would spend a good deal of time actually out in the hallway. (laughs) I guess you could kind of say it was a little bit like exile. Now, the, uh, the one thing is we were in downtown New York. The crime rate is a bit high. So you happen to be a little bit motivated to get back inside. And so you work things out and you learn to accept the other's flaws and inadequacies. Now, some folks look back on their first year as, as they love the simplicity. They look back on that with fondness. Um, maybe so for us. Um, I'm actually quite grateful I still don't live in downtown Rochester. But I really do appreciate what I learned about accepting my bride. The continual act of forgiveness and acceptance in a marriage is a beautiful picture to remind us of the perfect love of our Savior. Second, both the bride and the groom submit. Now, maybe you weren't thinking that I would say that they both submit. After all, we read Ephesians 5.22 and it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, men, it would be great if we just stop right there, I'm sure. And in fact, I would say that uh, uh, many people do actually stop right there with Ephesians 5.22. I have actually shared the gospel with a number of women who have heard Ephesians 5.22 and they won't come to the Lord because of this verse. They see this verse as sexist and subservient in a world that is much more enlightened today. And, uh, and so women who, uh, who, who give me this response, I've asked them at times, well, what about the husbands? And if they're familiar with Uh, the rest of the passage, if they know Ephesians 5.25, they say, well, husbands are just supposed to love their wives, and that's the easy part. And uh, actually, to be honest, I can see their point here. I mean, if you don't have kingdom eyes, there's really no way to get this passage. Let's take a look at it and read it carefully. Ephesians 5.22-23. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word 
and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Can you tell from this passage the intentionality with which God created and ordained marriage? So much so that Paul can hardly separate the two. He can hardly separate heavenly marriage from earthly marriage. Skip down to verse 32. This is a, pound, a profound mystery, Paul says. But I, but I am talking about the church, or I'm talking about Christ and the church. So which one is this passage actually about? Back when I thought the Bible was more of a rule book to be followed, I thought I understood these verses to have more practical meaning for here and now. But if you take a look at the whole verse and you compare it to Revelation 19, it's so much more beautiful than that. So much more romantic than that. Now that I've been married 19 years, I see this verse so much more differently. First, let's deal with the wife. Women, you are to submit to your husbands. You are to love them and hold them up. You are to give them everything. Now maybe that sounds harsh. Maybe it sounds sexist. But you're not doing this because your husbands are superior to you. You are doing it to provide an example of how the church loves Jesus. You know, some, uh, some of you wives in here may actually think of yourselves as being in a marriage that isn't going anywhere. Now, if you are in a marriage where there's abuse or some other situation, I do, I ask you to, to seek help. Um, uh, um, come see us and, uh, and we would be uh, um, more than happy to help you. But there are some of you who are sitting here today and, uh, and you're thinking that you're married to a husband who's just not that lovable. You might come to church on Sunday and put on a good face, but the other 166 hours of the week are torture in your view. You feel dragged down, maybe even persecuted, maybe even imprisoned in your own home. Now, for some of you, it might be much more subtle than that, but in most cases, in, in those cases, uh, you might think that the one thing you can do the one thing you might do is refuse to submit to your husband. But let me ask you a question. When a Christian loves Jesus, really, really loves Jesus, what happens when they are persecuted and tortured and imprisoned for the sake of the gospel? They sing praises to the Lord. See? Praises. <laughs> Wives, have you ever considered that your act of submission is not a subservient act, but an act of worship to create a godly everyday picture of the church? 
Now, let's switch over to the husbands, and you may not get off as easy as you might think. It's a little bit more complicated than just simply loving your wives. First, let's get one thing out of the way. Your wives are not going to submit. Apparently, some families more so than others. Um, I'm joking. No, uh, they're not going to submit, and certainly not perfectly. That's part of this picture. This picture is about that. Uh, When in the history of the world has man ever submitted to the Lord? When in this picture has the church ever submitted to the Lord? I have done a terrible job at submitting to the Lord. Men, if your wives are struggling to submit or not doing it at all, then what are you to do? Well, what does it say here in Ephesians 5? It says that you are to submit. Yes, even you are to submit. It says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, some couples read Ephesians 5 uh, at their weddings. Uh, Dawn and I actually, kind of because of the... um, the submission piece, and, and maybe it was my own heart back when I was younger. We chose Philippians 2 instead, and uh, I love these verses in Philippians 2. They're some of my favorite verses, and uh, I read them so frequently and often with tears. Let me read them now. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It is co-submission that is reflected in this verse. Now, just like in in Ephesians 5, Paul offers us the, the same example. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. The NIV says he submitted and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The picture here is Christ setting the example for husbands in that he totally submitted to the point of his death on the cross. Now that is total submission. He made himself nothing and became a servant to God and all of mankind. Now, husbands, Christ's example of servant leadership is just plain nuts by human standards. But if we would take this attitude of servanthood in our homes, imagine what our families would become. Philippians 2 shows us that the perfect marriage does not perfectly execute the rules of Ephesians 5. It acts out perfect love, 
forgiveness, self-sacrifice, and grace. Not to the glory of the marriage, or to the husband, or to the wife, but to the glory of the Lord. So, the groom accepts the bride, the bride and the groom submit, and finally, they really do live happily ever after. Now, I said that I'm a romantic, um, but to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of fairy tales. Uh, I read these stories occasionally to my bright-eyed little girls who absolutely love them, uh, and I'm always struck by that phrase, happily ever after. In fairy tales, if you think about it, that covers a lot of time from really what is the start of the relationship. The fairy tale itself is all about the struggle to get to the start of the relationship. And happily ever after goes from the start of the relationship all the way to the end. It's all covered under that one phrase, happily ever after. And I close a book going, really? Ever after? That's it? What about the fights and the broken promises, the exhaustion and the distractions? What about getting your kids through college and having back-to-back weddings and within months of each other? What, there, you know, there's so much struggle that's covered by that time and there's so much wonder and romance. What about learning to spend the rest of your lives together? What about the forgiveness? What about the dates and those romantic moments? What about the birth of your children? So much is covered in that time. And these crummy fairy tales end where the story really begins. We often think of weddings as very romantic events. But what about the rest of the marriage? Do you have to be made of plastic, like those little plastic figurines on top of the wedding cake, in order to have a happily ever after marriage? Well, let me give you some examples of marriages that are in the midst of happily ever after. And now they don't know that I'm going to do this, but bear with me. I'm going to give you a couple. Uh, Todd and Sandy, you are celebrating your 38th wedding anniversary next month. Is that correct? That is awesome. Um. Okay, Dave told me that he does not have a perfect marriage, but I think it's happily ever after. Dave, I think you said the other day, uh, you and Joanne were married, have been married 28 years, right? 28 years. I could go around. Um, uh, Mark, and uh, uh, how long have you guys been married? 28. <laughs> oh, no. By the way, uh, uh, if you have not heard their testimony of how, uh, what God has done in... Um, in the barber's marriage, uh, ask them sometime. It is a beautiful story. Uh, these are happily ever after marriages. I went, uh, took a look through the, the church directory the other day, and I estimated the total number of years uh, of marriage that we have in this church. And I'm sure you've heard of the statistics that the divorce rate in churches is, uh, is about the same as the secular divorce rate. Well, would it surprise you in this church, and we're not a big church, in this church, we have over 800 years of marriage? 800 years. That's amazing. 
That's absolutely amazing. Now, none of these marriages are perfect by the world's standards. We are working them through, but that is the point. These are imperfect people being Christ to one another, and they should be our example. Whether you're married or not, they are example of what it's going to be like for us in heaven. I mean, 38 years seems like a long time, but what will it be like celebrating our 1,000th year with the Lord Jesus with no end in sight? Revelation gives us a picture of what that will look like. Revelation 21 says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, imagine these words. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And we, the church, will live happily ever after. Now that is romantic. Let's pray. Heavenly and righteous Father, like a bride who waits with excitement for her wedding day, we wait with great joy and anticipation when we will be married to our Redeemer, Jesus. We also look forward to that day. We can hardly wait, Lord. Help us to live our lives here on earth with hope, knowing that you have prepared a new place for us. Help us, Lord, to look on our marriages as a sacred example of our future state. In the name of our beloved groom, Jesus Christ, who reigns forever and ever. Amen.